23, at New Orleans, when the English acquired Canada in 1763, they straightway fell under the sway of its harsh climate and long river systems, taking up the life of the fur trader, they followed the now scarcer pelts from the streams of Superior westward by Lake Winnipeg and along the path of the Saskatchewan River straight to the foot of the Rockies. Rivers have played the same part in expediting Russian expansion across the wide extent of Siberia. Here again a severe climate necessitated reliance on furs, the chief natural product of the country, as the basis of trade. These, as the outcome of savage economy, were gathered in from wide areas which only rivers could open up. Therefore, where the Siberian streams flatten out their upper courses east and west against the northern face of the Asiatic plateau, with low watersheds between, the Russian explorer and sable hunter struck their eastward water trail toward the Pacific. The advance, which under Yermak crossed the Ural Mountains in 1579, reached the Yenisei River in 1610 and planted there the town of Turuchangsk as a sort of milestone, almost on the Arctic Circle opposite the mouth of the Lower Tunguska, a long eastern tributary. Up this they passed to the Lena in 1627, thence to Bering Sea by the Kolyma and Onadir rivers, because these Arctic fields yielded sable, beaver and fox skins in greatest quantity, the Lena especially, from its source down to its eastern elbow at Yakutsk, that great rendezvous of Siberian fur traders, was a highway for trapper and Cossack tribute gatherer, from the sources of the Yenisean Lake by call to the navigable course of the Amur was a short step, taken in 1658. Though the control of the river, which was claimed by China, was not secured till 200 years later, see map page 103, as the only highways in new countries, rivers constitute lines of least resistance for colonial peoples encroaching upon the territory of inferior races, they are therefore the geographic basis of those streamers of settlement which we found making a fringe of civilization across the boundary zone of savagery or barbarism on the typical colonial frontier. Ethnic islands of the expanding people cluster along them like iron filings on a magnetized wire. Therefore in all countries where navigable rivers have fixed the lines of expansion, as in the United States, the northern part of the Russian Empire, and the eastern or colonial border of Germany and Austria, there is a strong anthropogeographic resemblance in the frontiers of successive decades or centuries, but in arid or semi-arid regions like South Africa, the western plains of North America, the steppes of Russian and Chinese Turkestan, the river highway motif in expansion is lost in a variety of other geographic and geologic factors, though the water of the streams still attracts trail and settlement, a river like the Nile, Lower Volga, Irtish or Indus, rising in highlands of abundant rainfall but traversing an arid or desert land, acquires added importance because it furnishes the sole means of water travel and of irrigation. The Nile has for ages constituted the main line of intercourse between the Mediterranean and Equatorial Africa, the Tigris, Euphrates, Indus, and the Niger where it makes its great northern bend into the Sahara near Timbuktu, attest the value to a local fertility and commerce inherent in these rivers of the deserts and steppes. Such rivers are always oasis makers, whether on their way to the sea they periodically cover a narrow floodplain like that of the Nile, or 190 miles wide like that of the Niger's inland delta above Timbuktu, or whether they emerge into a silent sea of sand, like the Magab of Russian Turkestan, which spreads itself out to water the gardens of Merv, even where such rivers had a volume too scanty to float a raft, they yet point the highway, because they alone supply water for man and beast across the desert tract, 
Beoxus and Serbaria had from time immemorial determined the great trade routes through Turkestan to Central Asia, the Platte, Arkansas, Cimarron and Canadian rivers fixed the course of our early western trails across the arid plains to the foot of the Rockies, and beyond this barrier the California Trail followed the long-drawn oasis formed by the Humboldt River across the Nevada Desert. The Gila River guided the first American fur-trapping explorers across the burning deserts of Arizona to the Pacific, and the succession of water holes in the dry bed of the Mojave River gave direction to the Spanish Trail across the Mojave Desert towards Los Angeles. In the same way, Livingstone's route from the Orange River in South Africa to Alatangani, under the direction of native guides, ran along the margin of the Kalahari Desert up the dry bed of the Mokoko River, which still retained an irregular succession of permanent wells, in the trade wind regions of the world, which are characterized by seasons of intense drought. We find rivers carrying a scant and variable amount of water but an abundance of gravel and sand, they are known in different localities as wadis, fumares and arroyos. Their beds, dried for long periods of the year, become natural roads, paved with the gravel which the stream regularly deposits in the wet season. Local travel in Sicily, Italy and other Mediterranean countries uses such natural roads extensively. Trade routes across the plateau of Judea and Samaria follow the wadis, because these give the best gradient and the best footing for the ascent. Wadis also determine the line of caravan routes across the highlands of the Sahara, in the desert of southwest Africa. The Kaisb is the first river north of the Orange to reach the Atlantic through the barrier dunes of the coast. Hence it has drawn to its valley the trade routes from a wide circle of inland points from Otway to Vintook and Rehobet, and given added importance to the British coast of Walfish Bay, into which it debouches, but just to the north. The broad dry bed of the Swaycock offered a natural wagon route into the interior, and has been utilized for the railroad of German Southwest Africa. The historical importance of a river increases from its source toward its mouth, its head springs, gushing from the ground, and the ramifying brooks of its highland course yield a widely distributed water supply and thereby exercise a strong influence in locating the dwellings of men, but they play no part in the great movements and larger activities of peoples. Only one minor affluence unite to form the mainstream, enlarge it in its lower course by an increasing tribute of water, and extend constantly its tributary area. Does a river assume real historical importance? It reaches its fullest significance at its mouth, where it joins the world's highway of the ocean. Here are combined the best geographical advantages participation in the cosmopolitan civilization characteristic of coastal regions, opportunity for inland and maritime commerce, and a fertile alluvial soil yielding support for dense populations. The predominant importance of the debouchment stretch of a river is indicated by the presence of such cities as London, Rotterdam, Hamburg, Bremen, Bordeaux, Odessa, Alexandria, Calcutta, Rangoon, Bangkok, Hong Kong, Canton, Nanking and Shanghai, Montreal and Quebec, New York, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Buenos Aires and Montevideo. This debouchment stretch gains in practical value and hence in permanent historical importance if it is swept by a scouring tide, which enables the junction of inland and maritime routes to penetrate into the land. Even Strabo recognized this value of tidal reaches, hence in tideless basins like the Baltic and Caribbean, the great river ports have to advance coastward to meet the sea, and the lower course of even mighty streams like the Volga and Nile achieve a restricted importance. The control of a river mouth becomes a desideratum or necessity to the upstream people, otherwise they may be bottled up, though history shows us countless instances of upstream expansion. 
nevertheless owing to the ease of downstream navigation and this increasing historical importance from source to mouth, the direction of a river's flow has often determined the course of commerce and of political expansion, the possibility of radial expansion, which we have found to be the chief advantage of a central location is greatly enhanced if that central location coincides with a hydrographic center of low relief. The 10th century nucleus of the Russian Empire was found about the low noble watershed formed by the Valdai Hills, whence radiated the rivers later embodied in the Muscovite domain. Here in Novgorod at the head of the Volkhoflagogoneva system, Skoth on the Vilaikaya, Tibir at the head of the navigable Volga, Moscow on the Okan, Smolensk on the Dnieper, and Vitebsk on the Duna were gathered the Russians destined to displace the primitive Finnish population and appropriate the wide plains of Eastern Europe. Everywhere their conquests, colonization, and commercial relations had followed the downstream course of their rivers. The Dnieper carried the ruse of Smolensk and Kief to the Euxine, into contact with the Byzantine world, and brought thence religion, art, and architecture for the untutored empire of the north. The influence of the Volga has been irresistible. Down its current Novgorod traders in the 12th century sought the commerce of the Caspian and the Orient, and later the Muscovite princes pushed their conquest of the Tartar hordes from Asia. The northern Dwina, Wanaga, Mizan and Pechora have carried long narrow bands of Slav settlement northward to the Arctic Ocean. See map page 225. Medieval Russian trade from Hanseatic Skuff and Novgorod, and later Russian dominion followed the Nerva and Neva to the Baltic. The Dnieper made Russia Byzantine. The Volga made it Asiatic, it was for the Neva to make it European, in the same way, when the early French explorers and traders of Canada reached the hydrographic center of the continent about Lakes Superior and Michigan, they quickly crossed the low rim of these basins southward to the Mississippi, and northward to the Rainy Lake and Winnipeg system draining to Hudson Bay, while it took them from 1608 to 1659 and 1662 to penetrate upstream from Quebec to the central watershed. Only nine years elapsed from the time 1673 Marquette reached the westward-flowing Wisconsin River to 1682, when La Salle reached the mouth of the Mississippi. The effect of mere current upon the course of trade and political expansion was conspicuous in the early history of the Mississippi Valley, before steam navigation began to modify the geographic influence of a river's flow. The wide forest-grown barrier of the Appalachian Mountains placed the western pioneers under the geographic control of the western waters. The bulkiness of their field and forest products, fitted only for water transportation, and the immense mass of downstream commerce called loudly for a maritime outlet and the acquisition from Spain of some port at the Mississippi mouth. For twenty years the politics of this transmontane country centered about the island of New Orleans and in 1803 saw its dream realized by the Louisiana Purchase. For the western trader, the Mississippi and Ohio were preeminently downstream paths. Gravity did the work. Only small boats, laden with fine commodities of small bulk and large value, occasionally made the 40-day upstream voyage from New Orleans to Louisville. Flatboats and barges that were constructed at Pittsburgh for the river traffic were regularly broken up for lumber at downstream points like Louisville and New Orleans for the traders returned overland by the old Chickasaw Trail to the Cumberland and Ohio River settlements, carrying their profits in the form of gold. The same thing happens today, as it also happened 2,000 years ago. On the Tigris and Euphrates, the highlander of Armenia or northern Mesopotamia floats down the current in his skin boat or on his brushwood raft, to sell his goods and the wood forming the framework of his primitive craft in timberless Baghdad and Bozrah. 
as formerly in treeless Babylon, he dries out his skins, loads them on his shoulders or on a mule brought down for the purpose, and returns on foot to his highland village. The same preponderance of downstream traffic appears today in eastern Siberia. Peddlers on the Amur start in the spring from Stretensk, 20-25 miles up the river, with their wares in barges, and drift down with the current, selling at the villages en route, to the river's mouth at Nikolaevsk. Here they dispose of their remaining stock and also of their barges, the lumber of which is utilized for sidewalks, and they themselves return upstream by steamer, the grain barges of western Siberia, like the coal barges of the Mississippi, even within recent decades, are similarly disposed of at the journey's end. The tonnage of downstream traffic on the Ohio and Mississippi today greatly exceeds that upstream. The fleet of 56 coal boats, carrying about 70.000 tons, which the great towboat Sprague takes in a single trip from Louisville down to New Orleans, all return empty, of the area code 1522685, net tons of freight shipped in 1906 on the Ohio system, area code 1398038, tons of coal, stone, sand and lumber were carried in and reed craft, fitted chiefly for downstream traffic, owing to the strong pull exerted by a river's mouth upon all its basin, current, Commerce and people alike tend to reach the ocean. For a nation holding the terrestrial course of a stream, the political fate of its tidal course or mouth must always be a matter of great concern. To the early westerner of the United States, before the acquisition of the Louisiana country, it was of vital importance whether belligerent France or more amenable Spain or the Republic itself should own the mouth of the Mississippi. Germany, which holds 240 miles 400 kilometers of the navigable Danube, can never be indifferent to the political ownership of its mouth, or to the fact that a great power like Russia has edged forward, by the acquisition of Bessarabia in 1878, to the northern Norkelian debouchment channel, such interest shows itself in sustained efforts either to gain political control of the mouth, or to secure the neutrality of the stream by having it declared an international waterway, and thus partially to deprive the state holding its mouth of the advantages of its transit location. The only satisfactory solution is undivided political ownership. After France pushed eastward to the Rhine in 1648, she warred for three centuries to acquire its mouth. Napoleon laid claim to Belgium and Holland on the ground that their soil had been built up by the alluvium of French rivers. Germany's conquest of Schleswig-Holstein in 1864 was significant chiefly because it dislodged Denmark from the right bank of the lower Elbe, and secured undivided control of this important estuary. The Rhine, which traverses the empire from north to south and constitutes its greatest single trade route, gives to Germany a more vital interest in Holland than ever France had. Her most important iron and coal mines and manufacturing industries are located on this waterway or its tributaries, the Ruhr, Mosul, Saar and Maine. Hence the Rhine is the great artery of German trade and outlet for her enormous exports, which chiefly reach the sea through the ports of Belgium and Holland. These two countries therefore fed non-German commerce and reduced German profits. Hence the empire, by the construction of the Emden-Dortmund Canal, aims to divert its trade from Rotterdam and Antwerp to a German port, and possibly thereby put the screw on Holland to draw her into some kind of a commercial union with Germany. Heinrich von Triich, in his Politik, deplores the fact that the most valuable part of the great German river has fallen into alien hands and he declares it to be an imperative task of German policy to recover the mouth of that stream, either by a commercial or political union. 
We need the entrance of Holland into our customs union as we need our daily bread. When the midland upper course of a river system are shared by several nations, their common interest demands that the control of the mouth be divided, as in the case of the low plate between Argentine and Uruguay, or held by a small state, like Holland, too weak to force the monopoly of the tidal course. The Treaty of Paris in 1856 extended the territory of Moldavia at the cost of Russia, to keep the Russian frontier away from the Danube. Her very presence was ominous. The temptation to giant powers to gobble up these exquisite morsels of territory is irresistible. Hence the advisability of neutralizing small states holding such locations, as in the case of Romania, and making their rivers international waterways, as in the case of the Orinoco, Skelt, Val, Rhine and Danube, the Yangtzekian mouth, where already the treaty ports cluster thick, will probably be the first part of China to be declared neutral ground and as such to be placed under the protection of the combined commercial powers, as is even now foreshadowed by the International Conservancy Board of 1910, the United States, by her treaty with Mexico in 1848, secured the right of free navigation on the lower or Mexican course of the Colorado River and the Gulf of California, the Franco-British Convention, which in 1898 confirmed the Western Sudan to France, also conceded the principle of making the Niger the sole outlet of this vast and isolated territory, an international waterway, and created two French enclaves in British Nigeria to serve as river ports. The mouth of a large river system is the converging point of many lines of inland and maritime navigation. The interests of commerce, especially in its earlier periods of development, demand that the contact here of river and sea be extensive as possible. Nature suggests the way to fulfill this requirement, the sluggish lowland current of a river on approaching sea level, throws out distributaries that reach the coast at various points and form a network of channels, which can be deepened and rendered permanent by canalization. In such regions the opportunity for the improvement and extension of waterways has been utilized from the earliest times. The ancient Egyptians, Chaldeans, East Indians, and the Gauls of the lower Po for thousands of years canaled the waters of their deltas and coastal lowlands for the combined purpose of irrigation, drainage, and navigation, the Great Canal System of China, constructed in the 7th century primarily to facilitate inland intercourse between the northern and central sections of the empire, extends from the sea at Hangzhou 700 miles northward through the coastal alluvium of the Yangtzekiang, Huanghu and Paihou to Tianjin, the port of Peking, only the canal system of the center, important both for the irrigation of the fertile but porous lois and for the transportation of crops, is still in repair. Here the meshes of the canal network are little more than half a mile wide, farmers did canals to their barns and bring in their produce in barges instead of hay wagons. Holland, where the ancient Romans constructed channels in the Rhine Delta and where the debouchment courses of the Rhine, Meuse and Scalp present a labyrinth of waterways, has today 1903 miles 3069 kilometers of canals, which together with the navigable rivers, have been important geographic factors in the historical preeminence of Dutch foreign commerce. So on the lower Mississippi, in the greatest alluvial area of the United States, the government has expended large sums for the improvement of the passes and bays of the river, the Barataria, Achafalaya, Turban, Black, Tech and Lafriki bays have been rendered navigable, and New Orleans has been given canal outlets to the sea through Lake Salvador, Pontchartrain and Bourne as the dividing channels of the lower course point to the feasibility of amplifying the connection with the ocean highway. So the spreading branches of a river source, 
which approach other headwaters on a low divide, suggest the extension of inland navigation by the union of two such drainage systems through canals, where the rivers of a country radiate from a relatively low central watershed, as from the central plateau of France and the Valdai Hills of Russia. Nature offers conditions for extensive linking of inland waterways, hence we find a continuous passway through Russia from the Caspian Sea to the Baltic by the canal uniting the Volga and Neva rivers, another from the Black Sea up the Dnieper, which by canals finds three different outlets to the Baltic through the Vistula, Neman and Duna, the northern Dwina, linked, by canals, with the Neva through Lake Swinaga and Ladoga, unites the White Sea with the Baltic, Sully, the great minister of Henry I.D of France, saw that the relief of the country would permit the linking of the Loire, Seine, Meuse, Somme and Rhine, and the Mediterranean with the Garonne. All his plans were carried out by his successors, but he himself, at the end of the 16th century, began the construction of the Briare Canal between the Loire near Orléans and the Seine at Fontainebleau. Similarly in the eastern half of the United States, the long, Low watershed separating the drainage basin of the St. Lawrence and Great Lakes from that of the Mississippi and the Hudson made feasible the succession of canals completing the Great Belt of inland navigation from St. Lawrence and New York Bays to the Gulf. Albert Gallatin's famous report of 1808 plonked out the adaptation of the three low divides to canal communication, but long before this, every line of possible canoe travel by river and portage over Swamp or Lake dotted watershed had been used by savages white explorers and French voyageurs, from Lake Champlain to a Lake Winnebago, so that the canal engineer had only to select from the numerous portage paths already beaten out by the moccasin feet of Indian or fur trader. The cheapness and ease of river travel have tended to check or delay the construction of high roads and railways, where facilities for inland navigation have been abundant, and later to regulate railway freight charges. Conversely, Riverless lands have everywhere experienced an exaggerated and precocious railroad development, and have suffered from its monopoly of transportation. Even canals have in most lands had a far earlier date than paved highroads. This has been true of Spain, France, Holland, and England. In the Huanghou Valley of northern China where waterways are restricted, owing to the rapid current and shallowness of this river, highroads are comparatively common but they are very rare in central and southern China where navigable rivers and canals abound. New England, owing to its lack of inland navigation, was the first part of the United States to develop a complete system of turnpikes and later of railroads. On the other hand, the great river valleys of America have generally slighted the high road phase of communication, and slowly passed to that of railroads. The abundance of natural waterways in Russia 51.800 miles including canals has contributed to the retardation of railroad construction. The same thing is true in the Netherlands, where 48.75 miles 78.63 kilometers of navigable waterways in an area of only 12.870 square miles 33.000 square kilometers have kept the railroads down to a paltry 18.18 miles 29.31 kilometers, but smaller Belgium commanding only 1475 miles 3314 kilometers of waterway and stimulated further by a remarkable industrial and commercial development, has constructed 40 to 28 miles 6819 kilometers of railroad. If we compare the countries of Central and South America, where railroads are still mere adjuncts of river and coastwise routes, a stage of development prevalent in the United States till 1858, we find an unmistakable relation between navigable waterways and railroad mileage. The countries with ample or considerable river communication, like Brazil, 
Venezuela, Colombia and Paraguay, are all relatively slow in laying railroads as compared with Mexico and Argentine. Even when allowance is made for differences of zonal location, economic development, and degree of European elements in their respective populations, Mexico and Argentine, having each an area only about one-fourth that of Brazil but a railroad mileage nearly one-fourth greater, have been pushed to this development primarily by a common lack of inland navigation. Similarly South Africa, stricken with poverty of water communication south of the Zambezi, has constructed 7,500 miles of railroads in spite of the youth of the country and the sparsity of its white population. Similar geographic conditions have forced the mileage of Australian railways up to twice that of South Africa, in a country which is still in the pastoral and agricultural stage of development, and whose most densely populated province Victoria has only 14 inhabitants to the square mile. In the almost enveloped wastes of Transcaspia, where two decades ago the camel was the only carrier, the Russian railroad has worked a commercial revolution by stimulating production and affording an outlet for the irrigated districts of the encircling mountains. In our own Trans-Missouri country, where the scanty volume of the streams eliminated all but the Missouri itself as a dependable waterway, even for the canoe travel of the early western trappers, railroads have developed and checked by the competition of river transportation with no rival nearer than the Straits of Magellan and the Isthmus of Panama for transportation between the Mississippi and the Pacific coast. They had fixed their own charges on a monopoly basis, and had thought the construction of the Isthmian Canal, a river system is a system of communication. It therefore makes a bond of union between the people living among its remoter sources and those settled at its mouth. Every such river system forms geographically an unbroken whole, only where a wild, torrent-filled gorge like the Brahmaputra's path through the Himalayas, interrupts communication between the upper and lower course. Is human life in the two sections divorced? But such cases are rare. Even the river Jilam, which springs with mad bounds from the lofty vale of Kashmir through the outer range of the Himalayas down to its junction with the Indus, carries quantities of small logs to be used as railway sleepers, and though it shatters a large percent of them, it makes a link between the lumbermen of the Kashmir forests and British railroad engineers in the treeless plains of the Indus. In arid lands, where the scant and variable streams are useless for navigation, but invaluable for irrigation, a rival interest in the limited water supply leads almost inevitably to conflict, and often to the political union of the peoples holding the upper and lower courses, in order to secure adjustment of their respective claims. The ancient Selassie of the upper Doria Balti Valley in the Alps threw off all the water of the stream for washing gold, and thus deprived the agricultural people lower down the valley of the water necessary for irrigation. The result was frequent wars between the two tribes. The offensive is taken by the downstream people, whose fields and gardens suffer from every extension of tillage or increase of population in the settlements above them. Occasionally a formal agreement is a temporary expedient. The river Firenze and other streams watering southern Transcaspia had their sources in the mountains of northern Persia, hence the Russians, in the Boundary Convention with Persia of 1881, stipulated that no new settlement be established along these streams within Persian territory, no extension of land under cultivation beyond the present amount, and no reduction of the water beyond that necessary to irrigate the existing fields. Russia's designs upon Afghanistan aim not only at access to India, but also at the control of the upper Mergab River, on whose water depends the prosperity of the Penjian and Mervoases. In such regions the only logical course is the extension of the political frontier to the watershed, a principle which Russia is applying in Western Asia.
and which California applied in drawing her eastern boundary to include even Goose Lake. Rivers unite. Ancient Rhone grew up on both banks of the Tiber, and extended her commercial and political supremacy up and downstream. Both sides of the Rhine were originally occupied by the Gallic tribes, whose villages were in some instances bisected by the river. Caesar found them in Api, a Belgian people on the lower Rhine, with their fields, farmhouses and villages on both banks. Then the westward advance of the Teutonic tribes gradually transformed the Rhine into a German river, from the island of Batavia at its mouth up to the Great Elbow at the foot of the Jura Mountains. To the American Indians even the widest rivers were no barriers. Christopher Gist, exploring the Ohio in 1751, found a Shawnee village situated on both sides of the river below the mouth of the Scioto, with about a hundred houses on the north bank and forty on the south. The small and unique nation of the Mandan Indians were found by Lewis and Clark near the northern bend of the Missouri in 1804, in two groups of villages on opposite sides of the river. They had previously in 1772 occupied nine villages lower down the stream, two on the east bank and seven on the west. The Connecticut River settlers of early colonial days laid out all their towns straight across the valley, utilizing the alluvial meadows on both banks for tillage, the terraces for residence sites and the common river for intercourse. Every river tends to become a common artery feeding all the life of its basin, and gradually obliterating ethnic and cultural differences among the peoples of its valley. The Nile, with its narrow hem of floodplain on either bank and barrier sands beyond, has so linked race and history in Egypt and Nubia, that the two countries cannot be separated. A common highway from mountains to sea, a common frontier of trackless desert have developed here a blended similarity of race language and culture from the Delta to Cordofan. The Hamitic race seems to have originated in the south and migrated northward down the Nile towards the Delta. Later the whole valley, north and south, received the same Semitic or Arab immigration, which spread from Cairo to the old Sudanese capital of Sennar, while a strain of Negro blood has filtered in from the equatorial Black Belt and followed the current down to the sea. The culture of the valley originated in Lower Egypt, and, with that easy transmissibility which characterizes ideas, it moved upstream into Ethiopia, which never evolved a culture of its own, just as noticeable as the political interplay. The rule of the pharaohs extended far up the Nile, at times to the third cataract at 20 degrees nl, and at one period Ethiopian kings extended their sway over Egypt, at another, a large body of